Good morning and welcome to the Coinbase Institutional Markets Call. It's Tuesday, October the 24th. Wow, what a difference seven days make. It certainly feels a lot, lot better with the price of BTC comfortably above 30k. As usual with BTC, this move has certainly been pretty aggressive. And even after the retracement we saw after last week's head fake, we're well above those highs. I'd say it, it really kind of shocked me and in a, in a really great way. David, Greg, curious, like, how do you guys think about this move higher? I assume you're pretty happy with it? Um, yeah, definitely. It's it's great to see um, the price of Bitcoin and crypto overall up. Um, not surprised with the direction of travel uh, that Bitcoin's taken over the last week. Uh, I am surprised by the speed of the move, though. Uh, I was actually on the, the desk last night when we traded up to 35000 and um, yeah, it was really quite something. Um, a few hundred uh, million dollars worth of liquidations went through on, on various exchanges, which you know really begs the question: like, who's short Bitcoin in front of a uh, U.S. ETF? Um, found that to be quite surprising. But um, but yeah, like you said, um, can't complain. Uh, I just hope you know we can consolidate in this range and uh, and set the stage for something higher. Yeah, I think I've just been left with a lot more questions and answers here. You know, like uh, to Greg's point, we saw about $320 million get liquidated over the last 24 hours. It's just not clear to me how much of this is new buying versus short getting liquidated. I mean, there's definitely some aspect of this here of people anticipating this spot Bitcoin ETF. There's obviously been some more headlines coming out. This idea that the fake news from last week kind of shows not all of this has been priced in. So I think that's kind of important. It's just... Um, you know, it's not clear to me the like the new direction of travel as far as how much more upside is to this rally. Well, let, let's hope there's a lot more. We're still waiting the actual news so around an ETF. So fingers crossed we can uh, at least hold the level, if not if not grind a little higher. So to our agenda, as is customary, we're going to cover some news, macro flows, Web3, basically everything that you need to know that's happened in the last seven days. But before we get started, some quick housekeeping if you scan the QR code on the, your page here, or if you check the show notes, if you're listening on a audio podcast, you can get access to all of David and the team's fantastic research. Please don't forget to like and subscribe us as well, to us as well. It will help others find the, the podcast. So some quick plugs before we get started. Our tax VP, Lawrence Zlatklin, had interviews with both Blockworks and Decrypt discussing Coinbase's concerns with the proposed IRS rules. Paul Graywell, our chief legal officer, also promoted the sign-on letter to oppose some of those rules as well. So please check those out. But let's get to the show. Joining us today, we have a very special guest, Paul Yablon, founder and CEO of Room 40. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ben. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So Paul is a true expert when it comes to managing risk. Managing risk for the last 30 years in both traditional assets and more recently in digital assets. Paul started his career on the training program at Brown Brothers Harriman, spent 15 years as a senior MD at Greenwich Capital, and then more recently in TradFire, spent the last 14 years as a PM at Moore Capital Management before founding rather Room 40 two years ago. So, Paul, it's, it's amazing to have people of your caliber in the space. Um, I guess the question you probably get asked a lot, and I'm kind of curious about, is like, what attracts you to crypto? And then secondly, like, how did you come up with the name Room 40? Well, um, look, I discovered uh, Bitcoin in 2013 and, um, you know, so I've been following the space and been involved in the space for quite a long time. I would say that after trading every asset in the world professionally, um, fixed income, 
equities, currencies, even commodities. Um, I, I was at a stage in my career where uh, I was looking for another challenge, a new challenge, and it seemed like the future of finance was shifting um, from uh, the traditional financial rails from the 20th century to new rails that would be 21st century rails. And I wanted to focus my time, efforts, and energy on on uh, those new financial rails. So uh, that's what led me to, to create Room 40. Um, I learned uh, as I was thinking about creating Room 40 that uh, really digital assets were not only uh, assets that were tradable liquid assets, but they were also essentially publicly traded uh, venture capital assets. So I partnered uh, with a uh, couple of venture capitalists and we hired some crypto native uh, engineers and uh, experts and we put together Room 40. We have uh, a venture capital fund and then we have a separate uh, liquid fund, which is what I run, which is uh, structured like a traditional total return hedge fund. Um, the name Room 40 uh, is, uh, comes from World War I. Uh, the British Admiralty uh, started a, uh, a secret effort to decrypt German messages. It was the precursor to Bletchley Park and uh, Alan Turing and the World War II group that uh, you know, helped uh, the, the allies win World War II. And uh, so that's where Room 40 comes from. Um, we thought it was kind of an appropriate name for a uh, digital asset uh, organization like ours. Very, very cool. As a, as a proud Brit, I'm glad there was a little bit of influence to, uh, to your name there. Um, very cool, very cool. Um, so back to my kind of earlier earlier question that I asked uh, both Greg and David. Like the speed of this move has been aggressive. The size has been aggressive. Like, how, how do you think about this, and has it surprised you at all? Look, I'm I'm always surprised uh, when markets make dramatic moves, uh, but we were we were somewhat prepared for this kind of a move in the crypto markets. Um, Really, uh, it was born out of uh, a very apathetic environment where uh, crypto natives had kind of lost faith in the space. Um, people had given up on the Bitcoin ETF approval process. Um, and uh, importantly, implied volatilities were at very depressed levels. Um, there, there were uh, people selling implied volatility, which means selling options uh, just to collect small amounts of premium. Um, so indeed, the fuel for, for uh, a really strong rally was there and you just needed a spark. Um, and I, I suppose the spark uh, has been uh, very much uh, catalyzed by two things. Um, one is the Obviously, the expectation that an ETF may be coming earlier than originally expected, and that was catalyzed by uh, the grayscale ruling and then, of course, uh, the lack of an appeal by the SEC and the expectation that um, that the court is has basically told the SEC that they need to uh, approve conversion of grayscale uh, to an ETF. Um, the second thing, which I think is a little bit more under the radar, is... Uh, is the the turmoil in the Middle East and uh, what that means for countries that hold a lot of petrodollars? Um, it's not lost on anybody that uh, the 
the U.S. dollar and the euro, to some extent, has has been weaponized in the last couple of years as tools of, uh, you know, economic warfare. And you know, if you're if you're holding a lot of dollars because you are an oil uh, exporter, um, and you're getting nervous that the Middle East could uh, devolve into something that's uh, worse than it already is, and it's already terrible, um, then uh, it, it wouldn't be uh, an unreasonable thing to try and get some of your dollars into something that is outside of the banking system and some of your euros out of the European banking system. And I do think that some of those flows have occurred and um, it's not exactly a flight to quality, um, but it does mirror a little bit what gold has been doing and it is you know, Bitcoin is digital gold. And so I do think that that's contributed to some of the positive dynamics in the market. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for uh, joining us today. Um, you know, we have we sit here today. Bitcoin's up 100 uh, percent. We have other crypto assets up 100 percent, some even more. You know, I think we can call this maybe the start of another bull market. Um the macro backdrop today, though, is very different than the macro backdrop at the start of the last bull market. You know, last time, uh, you know, we had uh, rates at zero. The Fed was easing. Uh, now, today, we have you know rates at five percent or higher. Um, we have QT going on. Does that change the way you think about uh, or position yourself in the crypto markets? And does it change the way you might bifurcate the crypto markets? So do you treat Bitcoin maybe differently than the other assets um, or does it not matter in your mind? I think the biggest difference uh, between uh, you're, you're right, the, the, the macro is very different. Um, the last rally was, uh, or the last bull market was uh, fueled by incredibly easy monetary and fiscal policy uh, born out of the pandemic. Um, the truth is, is that uh, in spite of the tightening uh, in monetary policy globally over the last 18 months, government spending is still pretty uh, aggressive. And so um, the the fiscal side is still a tailwind for digital assets. Um, but apart from the macro, I think, you know, crypto specifically, the last bull market was built on smart contracts and, uh, and uh, a, a lot of crypto native uh, exploration in decentralized finance and uh, and and everything that kind of came that was built in the in 18 and 19 that started to be used in 20 and 21 and there was a lot of crypto native excitement. I think this next phase of development in crypto is going to be very different and uh, it's going to really be much more a DLT story, which is distributed ledger technology, which is what all the traditional financial players talk about when they talk about crypto. Um, and every single bank and financial institution in the world is trying to, it has a, a, a digital ledger technology uh, roadmap, and they're all investing a lot of money in it. And, and I think the, uh, the institutionalization 
of this asset class is really what's happening next. And I, I actually suspect it's going to be much more sustainable and much more powerful than um, kind of the boom and bust cycle that we saw during uh, 2021 bull market. So one of the issue I kind of have with that, Paul, is yeah, you know, I love to kind of flesh out the idea of what a tokenization, what is that institutionalization of the crypto or blockchain kind of technology kind of look like? Because I agree with you. I think that this is going to um, be very sticky for institutional participation. Um, but the challenge I have is, you know, many of these uh, institutions are building their own private network, for example. It's not really being connected with public networks. Um, it's very separate from the idea of having liquid tokens. And that's kind of the mantra, right? Like blockchain, not Bitcoin. But uh, when you see uh, this new kind of crypto market cycle, like how do you envision these institutions participating in it? Well, look, you know, a, a, a very powerful and, and obvious first step is stable coins um, and potentially stable coins that have yield. Uh, we're involved with Maple Finance, which is uh, working when we're working with them to tokenize treasuries. And uh, and I think simple, simple things like stable coins, like tokenized yield are kind of the first step. Um, as soon as Congress allows it, and I do think it's coming. It, you know, pretty soon, um, maybe not soon enough, but um, certainly in the next year or so, I think we will have banks be able to uh, be involved in stable coins. They will have tokenized deposits, and I think that's the first step. And then eventually, um, you know, having uh, atomic settlement on blockchains for all financial transactions, and where Financial markets can be open 24 7. Uh, this is all, and which is right now native only to crypto, um, is going to come to the traditional financial system. Bitcoin itself, um, as Larry Fink has said, is, is potentially the world's first global uh, currency. And uh, I think of it a lot, as I said earlier, as digital gold. Um, but that's that's only you know one part of the entire uh, crypto market. It's it's the largest portion of the crypto market right now. But I think over time we're just going to see so many other assets tokenized, and value will be transferred over the internet. And that's really what crypto does. Interesting and. So, so Maple and what you guys are doing with Maple is has been has been great. And it's been awesome to see the growth in real world assets on chain. So that's been treasuries where a lot of that has been focused right now. Where do you think we might see growth kind of as a next stage? You mentioned stable coins, but and kind of yield bearing assets. But what other types of things do you think might work well uh, on chain? Well, I think identity um, and and things as simple as. KYC, but but all aspects of identity um, are really uh, best handled in a decentralized system where individuals can actually control their identity. I mean, right now, you know, you kind of trust your identity to any number of providers, whether it's the healthcare system or uh, the uh, the credit rating agencies. But um, and and there is there's 
having digital identity that is where where things can be verified and you can use ZK to to ask questions to find out hey did this guy actually go to Harvard does he actually have a Harvard diploma or is he or is he lying about it and um, you know you can find out things about your health records without uh, revealing absolutely everything I, I see something like that as being uh, a real non-financial use case um, and and so we're we're you know quite interested in that our venture people are quite interested in that space. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree with that. I think um, just giving uh, it opens so much more. Uh, I think many in crypto don't like KYC, but I think what you can do when you do have KYC is far more advanced than what we can do do right now. Yeah, look, in a world of deep fakes and AI um, and and things like this, you know, being able to have mathematical proof of something becomes you know, more and more important. And then when you start thinking about machines dealing with other machines, you know, crypto is integral to that uh, process. So Paul, I was kind of curious because, you know, I agree with you that so far we've seen this kind of decoupling and Bitcoin and crypto in general is kind of operating on its own. Like it's very idiosyncratic relative to everything else, which is, is great, especially if you're a traditional macro hedge fund guy, then you can just say, uh, you know what, there aren't, it's, it's not easy to come by these kind of stories that kind of sit on its own. So it's nice for now, but, you know, my outlook, and I think we've kind of discussed this before, is that we probably are still going to get a recession at some point in the U.S. And if that happens, do you think that we can still remain uncorrelated from the rest of the uh, risk environment? These the correlation. Look, over long periods of time, crypto has been really uncorrelated to to equities, uncorrelated to to tech stocks, uncorrelated to interest rates, uncorrelated to to currencies. And at times it's very correlated. And and so these are are shifting relationships. I think when uh, if you see a horrendous risk off environment, where there's a clamor for liquidity, um, kind of a crashy type environment like what we saw uh, during uh, the, the beginning of COVID. Well, then in, in that kind of environment, uh, as they say, you know, they throw the baby out with the bathwater, everything gets liquidated. And I suspect crypto will correlate with risk assets in if we hit kind of that type of a tipping point. But um, beyond that, uh, I, I do think that crypto has the capacity, uh, certain crypto assets will trade uh, somewhat uncorrelated. And, and I do, it harkens back a little bit to uh, how technology, certain growth technology companies did coming out of the financial crisis, right? Everything got thrown out during the financial crisis. It was a banking crisis. It was, it, it didn't really affect uh, Apple or Google or uh, uh, you know Amazon, right? But those stocks got destroyed, and then, but they were the ones that recovered the fastest and grew the most in the subsequent years after the financial crisis. And I think similarly now, if we go into a recession and we have kind of a risk-off environment, um, it's not going to arrest the development of. Uh, blockchain technology it's it and and you know 
it's not going to change the transition that's going on in the financial arena where distributed ledger technology is being used more and more and, and the financial rails of the 21st century are going to keep going in the direction of crypto. So it will probably recover faster and uh, and rally a lot stronger after that kind of a, of a you know recession trade, if you will. So, so I know I kind of pose that question as the hypothetical, but you know, more to the point, what do you think is going to happen with the U.S. economy over the next six to twelve months? You know, I think the U.S. economy is slowing. Um, I think the global economy is slowing. I think uh, the consumer is slowing down, um, and uh, so I'm not like I'm not predicting a recession, um, but I do think we're ending uh, the tightening cycle for now. Um, and it's going to really, it depends. There's a lot of, uh, variables that are hard to predict. You know, if the geopolitical situation gets worse and oil goes to, uh, 150 or 200, you know, we're going to have a recession. Um, and, uh, I, and so I, I think all that's possible. Um, we're also hearing, on the company specific level from some of my friends in the equity markets, you know, business has really slowed down and it's not really showing up in the macro data yet, um, but it's it's going to show up in the macro data. So I think we have kind of a, a moderation in global growth um, that is, uh, but I'm not sure it's gonna tip into some horrible recession. I don't necessarily see the big imbalances um, that you might expect before you have a really bad recession. Yeah, and I do think that what we've seen as far as fiscal expansion has definitely kept us away from seeing a slowdown in growth sooner rather than later. But that kind of brings up the other side of, like, let's let's think about what's going on in the fiscal situation, and not just in the U.S., but let's say what's going on in Asia with Japan, for example, who also has their own kind of inflation and monetary policy quandary that they're dealing with right now. Like it's leading to an issue that I think is, you know, prop by pushing the, the long end of the yield curve up in the U.S., which is where is demand for U.S. Treasuries going to come from? Because, you know, it, it seems, if anything, that more and more we're losing buyers of this. So do you see this as a potential issue? I, I don't really like I don't see it as an issue right now. Um, I think we're in a transition uh, after a 40-year bull market in fixed income. And really, it was a an environment where we had some very major deflationary or disinflationary pressures. I think the two biggest catalysts for disinflation were uh, the Berlin Wall coming down and having all of these, uh, you know, highly educated, capable uh Eastern Europeans being able to all of a sudden flood the high skill labor market and what that did to wages. And don't forget, like in the 70s and the early 80s, when we had high inflation, it was very much a function of wage wages pushing inflation higher. So that was a big dis disinflationary uh, event. And then, of course, China entering the WTO um, gave us 20 years of goods disinflation and free trade. Uh, of of free free trading labor markets and free trading goods markets globally put us into a position where we had uh, we we couldn't achieve very high inflation even when labor markets were tight and even when growth was very strong 
And what happened was we wound up, because of that, getting this negative term premium into the bond market, which was very different from what we saw in the 60s and 70s. And we are now transitioning from negative term premium. We're probably at more neutral term premium now. We probably are going to go to positive term premium. And, and why is that the case? Well, you know, the peace dividend from the Berlin Wall coming down is basically over. And we we basically, you know, started trade wars everywhere and tariff wars everywhere. And so the goods deflation um, that we were experiencing with offshoring to China and everywhere else um, basically has been reversed. Um, and uh, obviously, we had a supply shock during COVID that spiked inflation. But beyond that, um, as I as I look forward over the next 10 years, it, it's very easy to imagine a situation where it's very hard to get back to a real uh, sub 2% inflation rate in the United States or globally. And as such, we're going to have, uh, instead of uh, a negative term premium, where the expectation is constantly that the the asymmetric move in the bond market is to lower yields, we have positive term premium, which, which you know, is... is uh, perhaps uh, historically a, uh, a more normal environment. And I think that transition from a negative term premium to a positive term premium uh, is uncomfortable for market participants who only lived through negative term premium. And it makes them think you know, that bonds are never going to be able to be uh, absorbed. But I suspect uh, that's not really the case. So, Paul, I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned a couple of kind of very large disinflationary trends in the past, and it feels like potentially we have upon us one upon us now with with AI. Like, how do you think about that with the, within the context of uh, disinflation or, or inflation? Yeah, technology would have been the other uh, third uh big disinflationary force. I didn't mention it because I, I actually think it's still a disinflationary force. Um, and, uh, you know, technology can be an offsetting factor. Um, and, and obviously, uh, if productivity growth is very strong, you know, that would be the thing that, that keeps us from having uh, an inflation problem. I'm, I'm not bearish on inflation, particularly um, at this stage. Um, I was just pointing out that the bond market is uh, doesn't have a good reason to have negative term premium anymore. Got it. That makes sense. So um, we, we've spoken about a lot of things that have, I guess, given a, a pretty positive setup for, for digital assets, um, certainly of late. Uh, and potentially kind of going forward. I'm curious, like, what is there that concerns you? Like, is it possibly the the activity levels in Ethereum kind of trending a little lower? Like, is, it, is, it, is it something, is it around security and hacks increasing? I'm curious, as, as someone that's looked at the space for quite some time, like, what are some of the things that you would like to see improved that maybe we're not doing quite so well? Look, I think some of the complexities, and we live it, Every day here, running a digital asset fund, um, it's it's very complex, still way too complicated um, for for most people to uh, to use crypto. Um, so I think applications that abstract away that complexity so that individuals can use it um, is important. I think it's coming. I think Coinbase is 
doing their best to to help with that. Um, and and other other businesses will do that. Banks will do that as they are allowed to be involved. Um, and uh, and I do think you know use cases that are kind of non financial and non speculative um, as those whether it's gaming. Um, or things like identity or, or social networking um, are, are all uh, use cases that will, will help uh, facilitate adoption. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I literally, I can't wait for that first AAA rated game to come out and like people just play it. They don't know it's got anything to do with DLT technology or blockchain technology, but they just enjoy it for what it is. So I, I couldn't agree more. Um, so I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here. The the move higher has been quick. It's been aggressive. Where where do you think we go from here? Next couple months is are we going to hold these levels, or, or do you think we kind of retrace back to our, our previous range? No, I look. I think uh, I think in the broadest sense, um, we're not going to easily revisit the levels that we got to at the end of 22. I mean, remember 2022 was like a major financial crisis in crypto. Um, you know, it started obviously with, uh, excessive valuations that were, uh, created by the super easy policies coming out of the pandemic. So, at the beginning of 22, we were very correlated to the interest rate cycle. And as real interest rates went up, crypto went down and every asset was repricing to higher real interest rates. But then we had Terra Luna and um, all of the failures that happened afterwards, BlockFi, Celsius, Voyager, um, obviously uh, culminating with FTX and Genesis. Um, and it was a real f financial crisis environment. And uh, there was a ton of forced liquidations. So like Bitcoin below 20,000 and, and ETH below 1,000, those prices are, are, shouldn't really be in our mindset. They were distressed prices. Um, and, uh, and so while I'm not sure that we're entering the next Super Bowl market, I do think we can hold... Uh, much higher prices than we were at the end of last year. We've had a pretty good year in terms of price appreciation. Um, there's going to continue to be adoption. Um, the technology continues to improve. To improve, and uh, I, I think the opportunity set um, for you know asset appreciation in crypto is going to be pretty decent going into 2024. We have the halving cycle. Um, coming. So, um, yeah, uh, we're pretty constructive. Paul, I, you know, on the show, especially for the last God, uh, two and a half months, we've really talked a lot about Bitcoin um, as that's sort of taken the air out of the room. But now you run a, uh, you know, a liquid fund in the crypto space. What outside of Bitcoin really gets you and your team excited? Um, you know, we've had some ETH maxis on this uh, the show before. Um, we have people that you know love Solana, even things you know further out the risk curve. Kind of where do you sit, and um, sort of what gets you most excited? So um, my team is is 
quite excited um, about Solana um, and the technology and uh, the the uh, uh, the whole ecosystem there, and the fact that it's quite differentiated from uh, some of the other L1s. Um, and uh, my guys are also uh, pretty excited about ETH scaling solutions. So um, kind of looking at uh, things like Optimism, and uh, which of course is the engine that runs Base, uh, which is your product, um, and Arbitrum, and some of the other ETH scaling solutions. They're, they're pretty uh, excited about, particularly as we move toward implementation of uh, EIP 4844. Um, and, uh, you know, on the venture side, uh, they are uh, trying to invest in identity, as I talked about earlier, um, as well as uh, businesses that are kind of reimagining how the crypto financial system works, because uh, obviously, um, you know, the, the shadow banking system that was developed, uh, you know, in 2021, 22 is, 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 was, was not successful. And so, um, you know, whether it's on chain or off chain, um, any kind of, uh, rebuilding the financial infrastructure is something that we're interested in. And, uh, yeah, that's. Perfect. Well, Paul, thank you so, so much. Um, I hope you're going to stay with us for the rest of the show and we'll certainly bring you in on, uh, other topics. Uh, as we go, I think one one thing that I really really enjoyed speaking with you is that your breadth of experience across so many different asset classes is is so relevant in crypto because I feel like crypto takes bits from equities, bit from bits from FX, bits from commodities, and it's kind of bringing them all together. And there's very few people we speak to that have got ex- such experience across all of them. So thank you for joining, and uh, we'll bring you in later in the show. George, over to you. Um, I know there's some some news that's come out uh, as we've been recording, so uh, maybe we can we can touch on that. Yeah, exactly, Ben. Thank you. Uh, so uh, the elephant in the room, obviously, as you've discussed with uh, Paul just now, uh, was BlackRock's uh, spot Bitcoin ETF um, appearing on the uh, DTCC website, which uh, suggested that IBTC is a new uh, Bitcoin iShares ETF ticker. And as you just mentioned, um, while we were recording this call, actually, there was some breaking news uh, that uh, this ticker has been taken down. So we'll have to see um, as to what that actually means. Um on, on that one there, so it got taken down and what's been the price action? Presumably we're reversing a little bit. Yeah, so, so we've seen some corrections. Obviously, if you look at the um, at, at the slide, um, uh, we're trading around uh, 34 and a half, 34, uh, 700. Um, so i seen the market move down a couple percent um, just um, on, on, on that news uh, or that headline. Uh, but we're still in the high uh, 33s uh, at the moment. Perfect. Well, yeah, hopefully we uh, it gets reinstated soon and we can reverse back the other way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But yeah, I mean, um, you know, the uh, fact is that it, it is the first uh, Bitcoin spot ETF on that website. And to be clear, um, you know, there's obviously no uh, regulatory approval yet, but uh, BlackRock is clearly leading in, in these uh, logistics, if you want to call it that. Uh, and the market has definitely taken that as a signal that uh, the approval is A, almost certain, and B, and or uh, imminent, pretty much. 
So that has really um, propelled the market higher uh, with uh, Bitcoin trading up to uh, 35K at the highs. So that, that was um, 22% up uh, over a week um, as of a couple of hours ago. And uh, ETH was trading up to uh, $1,850. Um, we didn't really have that in, in quite a while. And while that was obviously the trigger, um, I think there's a couple of other things playing into it, making the move even more explosive. Um, just to add to, to a couple of thoughts that Paul um, shared earlier in the conversation, I think, um, you know, overall in the grand scheme of things, positioning has been relatively speaking on the lower side. Uh, liquidity you can probably make the same case if you compare that to like a year ago, a year and a half ago, uh, relatively speaking lower. And then there were some technical factors. If you dissect the move and look back uh, to last week, um, the first thing was holding uh, Bitcoin holding above the 100 and 200 day moving averages um, and then uh, taking the uh, key levels, um, whichever way you look at it, uh, around 31,400, 31,700, uh, causing, again, depending on the source that you look at, uh, 320, as David mentioned, to up to $400 million um, of liquidations across um, the space. The other interesting thing is that uh, Bitcoin dominance um, is now just under 54%. So that's, again, the highest level this year and, in fact, the highest level since Q2 uh, 2021. So overall, you know, I'd say a pretty positive week um, for uh, crypto overall. And, um, you know, you can immediately see the spike of um, interest across clients um, from various segments. And it really, uh, you know, reminds me of that Bitcoin meme that I just put up here on, on the slide uh, from the last bull market, in fact, where uh, you have a massive queue of people uh, looking to buy BTC at 65K, but actually uh, not that many or slash not at all at uh, 25K. Yeah, I feel like that's very much uh, human nature. Uh, but sums it up uh, pretty well. Warren Buffett be fearful, and others are greedy, and, and vice versa. Um, what, what else? What else has been happy, happening, uh, George? Any other kind of reasons around maybe the move in ETH or uh, any big altcoin performers? Yeah, so if you look at altcoins, um, similarly to the majors, pretty positive price section. Uh, a couple of things that stood out to me. Uh, so one of the tokens that was leading this rally uh, was LINK, um, one of the first ones to start rallying. That was up uh, of 38% of the week. Um, so I think, um, and that one has been consolidating in, in a range for, for about a year and a half, um, between four and a half, nine and a half dollars or so. And I think uh, many traders will be focusing on that and just looking you know, at other coins with similar patterns for uh, potential breakouts. And then, um, you know, uh, the other thing is that if you look at Bitcoin, um, uh, it's, it's in particular Bitcoin related tokens that have been also showing some outperformance. So, for instance, uh, BSV is up 33% over the last seven days and um, STX up uh, 30% as well. Um, so that's um, something interesting. Uh, although we have seen that in the past during strong Bitcoin rallies. And then lastly, on the altcoin side, um, meme coins, um, you know, potentially seeing some interest from retail again there. Uh, so Pepe, for instance, is up uh, 43% uh, over the last uh, seven days. But looking at ETH, uh, and to answer your question that, obviously, um, if we go to the next slide, uh, I think we spoke on this call um, a couple of weeks back about, you know, this whole underperformance of uh, ETH vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, BTC. And um, some of the angles that we're looking at is uh, number one, positioning, among other things, then L2 transaction volumes, uh, sucking some air out of ETH, so to speak. Uh, and I think another angle, um, which is represented by this chart here, um, which is interesting, is the dealer gamma positions in Bitcoin versus ETH. 
um, especially if you dissect the price section over the last couple of days. So if you look at that chart, basically you can see that uh, dealers uh, yesterday were um, quite short gamma and Bitcoin and basically had to keep buying spot Bitcoin to stay um, delta neutral on the options positions. Um, but uh, in ETH, it was actually the opposite situation. They were long gamma. Uh, so they have uh, kept having to sell um, spot ETH as the market was going up, sort of naturally putting some uh, downside pressure on the ETH BTC cross, um, if you will. Um, so I think that uh, sort of contributed um, to, to the moves that we've been seeing. Perfect. Thank you very much for that rundown, George. Um, hopefully we don't have any more headlines through the rest of the call. Um, now moving on to trade flows. Uh, Greg. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Uh, it's been a really fun week to be on the desk. Um, we've seen volumes pick up quite a bit. Yeah, we have a chart right here. Um, the key thing uh, for me is we've seen, obviously, these very high volume days uh, when news breaks. Um, but in between, we're still seeing um, you know, good interest in the market. And that's coming from both the institutional side and the retail side. Um, and that's something you know, I look for that, that really um, you need to have a healthy run higher. Um, obviously, now our flows have been concentrated predominantly in Bitcoin, given you know, everything we've talked about on this, uh, this call time and time again. Um, but one notable thing is uh, we've had a number of, of clients uh, actually come in and, and put you know, relatively large positions on in Bitcoin, not so much uh, because of the ETF, um, but more because of the uh, long-term fiscal problems they see in the U.S., um, the deteriorating macro backdrop where they think that Bitcoin could possibly be a, um, a digital gold-like asset, um, a lot of the things that, that Paul spoke about earlier. And again, I think that's a, a really positive thing um, to, to have develop. We can't just hang our hats entirely on an ETF. Uh, that, that won't get us there. Um, so it's, it's very encouraging that we're having, you know, folks, you know, put real money to work with, you know, varying thesis. That's, that's super interesting here. And Greg, I would love to bring Paul in. So Paul, as, as you speak to some of your, um, I guess, former colleagues that are still in the macro space, is Bitcoin on their radars? I mean, it's a narrative that we like to talk about within the industry, but I'm curious if it actually kind of extends to, to folks still trading uh, macro books. Uh, it's very much on everybody's radar. It's on CNBC all day long, um, and virtually every macro market participant that I talk to um, pays some attention to the price of Bitcoin and the price of Ethereum. I mean, they're they're not in the weeds uh, on the rest of uh, the digital asset space, but um, for sure, Bitcoin is now accepted as a uh, part of the macro landscape and people pay attention. And, and w when they look to uh, kind of move their books around, do they have a way of um, accessing Bitcoin? Like, I guess you've got like GBTC is kind of imperfect. You've got futures. Like, how do people think about it? And as and when the, the ETF launches, is, is that potentially another path that people will use to add exposure to their books? Yeah, I think for sure. Access is limited. Um, so, and, uh, and there's probably, uh, I, I wouldn't, I would venture to guess that 
more than half of the market participants in traditional markets do not have a way of accessing Bitcoin. Um, so the ETF will provide that access for the entire equity space. Um, right now, macro funds tend to trade CME futures, um, which is uh, segmented, obviously, a little bit from uh, the, the physical uh, crypto markets that Coinbase uh, provides in exchange in. Perfect. Thank you for uh, for making the plug on Coinbase. I would have been uh, in trouble if uh, we hadn't brought up spot Bitcoin. So thank you for that. Um, that's that, that's super interesting, uh, Greg. Well, what what else are we seeing on the the flow side of things? Yeah, the other uh, again, you know, encouraging flow we're seeing is we're starting to see people come uh, back into the market for Ethereum. Now, you know, in the first six months of uh, of the year, you know, ETH was kind of our uh, maybe the asset we traded almost the most of. Um, a lot of VCs, for instance, uh, view it as sort of their crypto beta. Um, that bid fell away, um, you know, in June after the Bitcoin ETF news, uh, you know, hit the tape and everyone uh, started to focus there. And, you know, because of that, we've seen that the BTC um, ETH cross uh, underperform uh, quite a bit. Now we're actually seeing as Bitcoin's kind of pulled the entire market up with it, we're seeing uh, some of those same folks and new accounts as well um, come in and, and look to add ETH. Uh, here, I think it's sort of a situation where nobody wants to miss the rally, um, and uh, and you know, additionally, they're looking for the next trade. Uh, you know, BTC, the GBTC uh, trade is is nearly done. We're out of a well, fourteen percent discount, so a little wider than I would have expected. Um, but now everyone's looking to the next trade, and whether that will be ETH E or, or something else. Uh, we don't know, but but people are uh, placing their bets. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. I know we've discussed the potential kind of mean reversion there um, for for ETH a little bit. It's certainly had a, a torrid time this last uh, last six months or so. Activity down and interest down, and, and BTC. I think you said it a few times, just sucking the air out of this out of the space. Um, now, Greg, we normally have a chart here on ETF timelines, but given all the news we've had. Is it is it almost um, not quite as relevant as, uh, as as in previous weeks? I mean, we could put it up. Um, <laughs> it's uh, but it, it's turning into this thing that you know it's almost like the market thinks it could come at any day, um, and, and it may. Uh, you know, yesterday we got the news that the uh, BlackRock ticker was up on DTCC's website. You know, that was part of the the cause for the the aggressive move higher. Today, we found out that, um, you know, it sounds like that ticker has been now taken off. Um, you know, I can't say how meaningful that is, um, but certainly the market feels like this could come at any day um, and it, it very well may. However, you know, that January date, I think, is a drop dead date. So, you know, between now and then, be ready. Perfect. Thank you, as always, Greg. Appreciate it. Um, Sid. DeFi and Web3, please. What's been going on? Yeah, a um, couple of big launches today and this, this past week in, in DeFi and Web3. One was uh, just today, a few hours ago, uh, the DYDX team announced that their uh, DYDX chain is now uh, open source and live and uh, that it will be going uh, live on mainnet pretty soon. Um, 
effectively what this means is they've, they've kind of open sourced the code base on, on their GitHub. Folks can investigate it. And then uh, what this uh, enables is for the actual development team uh, that's called DYDX Trading to kind of step away from this uh, themselves and have other ecosystem uh, players kind of run the chain and, and, and uh, continue it. Uh, so kind of decentralizing the entire ecosystem quite a bit more. Um, what it is, it's basically a standalone kind of app chain for the DYDX perpetual uh, exchange. Uh, and uh, it, it can supposedly offer up to 2000 transactions per second. So scales up the throughput quite a lot from what it is right now. And likely this, this, uh, what this means is probably that the, the token itself, the DYDX token, probably plays a larger role uh, in governing this ecosystem and then how different partners and and uh, players are, are incentivized to actually run nodes and, and uh, support the chain. Um, that's that's one big launch. And then the other one is uh, Celestia. Just, just, sorry, just quickly yeah. on that one, Sid. Um, so remind me, that's uh, built on Cosmos. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And once the, the DYDX trading team kind of uh, decentralizes this and allow others to work on it, what, what do they then do? Are they like focusing on product or like what, what, I guess what's the next step for, for them? Yeah, likely they'll take a similar path as Uniswap, the team to probably focus on more on, on a UX layer to interact with the protocol, um, having the website up and running and potentially taking some fees from that um, and other options to access the protocol, you know, improving on their mobile apps and, and, and other uh, UX improvements. Got it. And have we, uh, I guess, in terms of like volumes for DYDX, have, have we seen those change as a result of this announcement or just generally tick up with the, the market move? Yeah, n nothing out of the ordinary, um, just a general, you know, tick up uh, along with every other asset. But likely once mainnet goes live and then we see kind of where the token will be used, we, we probably uh, might see a, a shift in the token itself. Got it. And, and Paul, we'd, we'd love to bring you in here. Um, we, we didn't discuss kind of perp exchanges and, and things like that. But as you look at the trading landscape and you've got a ton of different options of kind of where you trade and how you trade, um, something like DYDX or perhaps GMX, like how do you think about these platforms and their importance in the, um, I guess, the new financial infrastructure going forwards? My opinion is that uh, for institutional capital, um, we really can't use things like that. You know, we have uh, requirements with the SEC to have uh, qualified custody. And so it's very difficult for us to uh, leave assets um, at uh, something, uh, an on-chain uh, decentralized uh, exchange. Um, we... Uh, we're, we're very comfortable, obviously, uh, and, and we're clients of Coinbase. Coinbase has qualified custody. Um, that's where we have to have to trade right now. Perfect. That, make, that makes a ton of sense. So more of a, a retail or ex-US phenomenon for the, for the time being. Super. Thank you. Um, Sid, what, what, what else have you been keeping an eye on? Yeah, one, one other similar chain kind of launch is uh, Celestia. Uh, Celestia is a, is a project um, that's kind of focused on building a modular blockchain ecosystem, specifically on the uh, data availability front. Um, this is kind of 
this whole vision that Ethereum as a whole is going to be split up into multiple components that are specialized at doing certain things. And specifically, data availability helps with scaling with rollups, uh, which currently, uh, like like Optimism and Arbitrum, which currently post a lot of their data uh, eventually to, to mainnet Ethereum. They can use Celestia as a data availability layer. Um, and, and the mainnet for, for Celestia is scheduled to go live sometime uh, this month, uh, uh, potentially by the end of the month, according to the GitHub repository. And along with it also, uh, they have a, a token called the TIA, TIA token. Um, and uh, it was given in, a, in an airdrop for, for certain wallets, and which was eligible to claim starting in September. Uh, and the, the window to claim closed in October 17th. And actually less than a third of the wallets that were eligible for the token actually claimed the token. Um, so I believe the existing wallets that claimed uh, will actually be getting more of the token allocated to them. Uh, so uh, that, that's something else that's, that's been uh, happening in DeFi this week. Cool. Um, always, always a lot going on. And thank you for making it a lot more clear than, than, than it is. It's always pretty complex. Um, yeah. Anything else you're keeping an eye on, things that we should be looking out for? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, there's a slide I added on uh, on just what 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 were the key tokens that were moving uh, as a result of this move on chain in terms of uh, on on chain DEXs, apart from the majors, BTC, wrap BTC, and and stable coins. We see actually ARB and CRV USD is kind of the largest volume uh, gainers on this move up. Uh, which is interesting, uh, especially with November coming up and with ARB, uh, there was a huge ecosystem vote that went uh, went on the previous month. We discussed this in previous calls as well. Uh, basically, a bunch of projects on, on Arbitrum will be getting ARB incentives going live next month, um, potentially to incentivize liquidity, trading volume, et cetera, and, and other use cases. So something to look out for, for ARB ecosystem uh, participants, and uh, so that that's one one thing keeping an eye on, and, and then the other is um, this is a recurring thing, social fi, right? Which is something that we've been covering for the past few calls as well uh, with friend tech. Um, it actually saw a pretty large sell-off over the past few days, contrary to the rest of crypto. Um, uh, specifically, this was started by its largest portfolio account. Uh, it was called Vombatus. Uh, it, it just had an animal profile picture, but uh, the what that account had done was they had basically bought a bunch of their own keys, their own uh, kind of friend tech uh, uh, profile keys, and uh, in one shot yesterday they'd sold almost all of them, uh, 176 of these keys. This triggered a pretty big sell-off uh, across the Frentech ecosystem. So a lot of large profiles started selling off, uh, a bit of a cascade effect. And uh, there's also other alternatives that have come up. There's one uh, called New Bitcoin City, another social um, social finance project in a similar vein to Frentech and, and other alternatives. So TBD on whether the momentum there sustains, um, whether things calm down a bit after this week, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, never, never a dull day. Um, I'm curious to see how the uh, the other Frontech clones get on and whether they can uh, innovate uh, away from some of the, the move down. But Sid, thank you as always. Um, always great to, to know what's going on uh, in Web3 and DeFi. That is a wrap for this week. I really thank you to the whole team and thank you for Paul for joining. And good luck out there. Let's hope we continue this move higher and we'll see you next week. Take care. All statements and analysis correspond to the date of this recording. This recording is only intended for sophisticated investors. 
This recording should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Coinbase nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any of the information contained in this recording. The views expressed in this recording are not necessarily those of Coinbase. Coinbase is not providing any financial, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations. The receipt of this recording by any listener is not to be taken as a giving of investment advice by Coinbase to that listener.